0: Today, we are beginning another week, week number four in our series that we're calling One Thing. And it starts with this big question. The question is, if there was only one thing you were known for, only one thing in your life that everybody knew you for, what would you want that one thing to be? Would you want your one thing to be your car or your family or your house or your job or your income or any of those things? Uh, For me, in my better days, I have the right answer. In my worst days, you know, I don't. But uh, in my better days, the answer that I have, the one thing that I want to be true in my life is the one thing that Jesus had as his one thing. I want my one thing to be the same as Jesus' one thing. And in Mark, we learn what Jesus says his one thing is. It's in Mark chapter 12. Put it up here on the screen one more time. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I'm going to get to something a little bit later today, and it's important that you see this at the beginning. The man asking Jesus the question is a teacher of the law. That means the man asking Jesus the question already knows the right answer okay? He's not asking Jesus for advice. He's not asking Jesus to tell him a new answer. This is a guy who already thinks he knows the answer. And he's testing to see if Jesus knows the answer. You see, this is not coming from a place of authentic inquiry. This is coming from the place of arrogance. This is coming from the place of test. Is this Jesus guy really all he says he claims to be? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus starts with the most famous Old Testament command about God being one. And then let's keep going. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We've seen in the previous weeks that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the chapter after the Ten Commandments. And this is Jesus saying, The Lord is one. Love him with all you are, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is like it. Love, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the fascinating thing is that even though Jesus gives two and even though we are told one of them is first and one of them is second, he then at the very end says, oh, and by the way, there is no single commandment greater than these. It's a commandment that is two parts. I I don't know if you know if you've noticed this, but it's the reason why our logo for this series involves a white and a blue that kind of come together and mix and then unmix and then mix because it's two things, but it's one thing. Jesus' one thing was really two things, but it's really one thing. Now, what we've done over the last couple of weeks, and I'll just give you a little bit of review, we've talked a little bit about what it means to make God and love for God primary. We talked last week about loving God from your heart. And even though the Bible understanding of the word heart incorporates a whole bunch of things, as we'll see today in a couple passages, the word heart, In the Bible sometimes means your mind and your will and your desires and your emotions and all those things. But last week, I spoke about it from the perspective of emotions. What does it mean to love God emotionally? And we talked a little bit about that and how it's actually a good thing to let your emotions love God. And it's an important thing because God asks for it. And if you look at all the other ones here as well, you will notice a very interesting thing. Whether you are talking about it from the perspective of the ancient people or whether you're talking about it from the perspective of us here today, almost every one of these things that Jesus says we're supposed to use to love God has a verb associated with it, like heart. If I just said, what's the verb associated with heart, most of us would say love, but since we're already talking about love, you go one step farther and you're like, oh, feelings, emotions, feeling something. That's kind of the thing that I associate with my heart. Or your mind. What is the verb you associate with your mind? Well, there's a number of them. There's thinking, there's understanding, all that kind of stuff. But, but we know what a mind is. Or your body. What's the action thing that goes along with your strength? that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your strength? Well, yeah, I know things that I do. I have activities and actions and behaviors. There's a, there are verbs that I can associate with my strength. But what about your soul? What's weird is that we don't have any verbs that associate with our soul. Feeling? No, that's really, I think of feeling with my heart. Uh, what is the verb? This is one of our problems. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other ones we can make sense of. But the soul one, what? We don't really know. And I think that's the point. You see, if I could understand my soul, it would be my mind. If I could feel my soul, it would be my heart. If I could change my soul or have my soul do things and control its behaviors, that would be strength. Jesus intentionally, based on the Old Testament passage, he intentionally uses a word that we can't really understand. We can't touch it, we can't feel it, we can't experience it, it is beyond us in so many ways. And I think that's the reason Let me show you a couple things that I think are really interesting and fascinating related to all this. First, let's jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I mentioned that the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. This is the next verse after it, Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You should notice that there's something going on here that's different from what Jesus said. Can you see it? In the Deuteronomy passage, it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It mentions three things. Remember, this is God giving his command to Moses to give to the people. So when God gives his own command, he says, love the Lord your God, love me, with your heart, soul, and strength. He mentions three. If you've got a good memory, you remember that Jesus had mentioned another one. Jesus mentioned four. He mentioned mind in addition. Before we get back to that, though, let's look at a couple other passages from Deuteronomy. This one comes from Deuteronomy 4. And I find it to be really fascinating as well. This one says, if from there, and this is God saying, one of these days I might punish you and send you into timeout. And by that, he means I'm gonna have another nation capture you and carry you away. And then God says, but if you are in timeout, if you are carried away, if you are in exile, and from there you seek me, If from there you seek the Lord your God, then you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. So here, strength is the outlier. Heart and soul are the two things that kind of are linked together. And strength is the thing that only showed up later on in the how to love God passage. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, take a look at what it says here. In Deuteronomy ten twelve, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? What's interesting is that in Scripture, heart and soul are two things that are intrinsically linked with each other frequently. In fact, you get the idea from Scripture, from the Bible, that heart and soul are really a dual way of describing my internal reality. Because I can obey God with my hands and my feet. You know, I can serve God with my hands and my feet. But then it said to do all these things with all your heart and all your soul. We get this idea that heart and soul is together the interior of me. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the word soul all by itself refers to that interior part of you. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word heart all by itself refers to that interior of you. And so there's no like technical distinction in the Old Testament between what is your heart and what is your soul and all this other stuff. But let me take you back to the passage we saw with Jesus. Because there's another interesting thing that goes on here. Remember, in Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God, Six five, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Only three things. When Jesus mentions it in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, live with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus adds the word mind. And remember who asked him the question. It was a scholar, right? It was a teacher of the law. He's quizzing Jesus. And Jesus, let's be honest, just said it wrong. The verse from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. That's what Deuteronomy said. If Jesus were quoting Deuteronomy, he should have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So Jesus technically got it wrong. What is the guy going to say in response? What is the teacher of the law going to say? Because Jesus got it very close, right? He was very close. So what is the teacher of the law going to say? Watch this. This is really interesting. Well said, teacher, the man replied. This is a guy who's like patting Jesus on the back. He's like, good job, Jesus. I'm proud of you. You did a really good job. And then he summarizes, check this out. He says, you are right in saying that God is one. That's where Jesus started. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. That's not exactly what Jesus said. He just said, love the Lord your God, he is one. He didn't say there's no other. The guy is adding a little bit, but keep this. He says, to love him with all your heart with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you see what the guy did? He jumped back to three. Jesus had said four. That made the guy nervous. So he jumped back to three. But when he jumped back to three, he also changed the word. He changed the word to understanding. He's also technically wrong. The word was heart, soul, strength. This guy changes it to heart understanding and strength. It's because he doesn't, he doesn't want to let the people around him know that he thinks Jesus was wrong. He's kind of flattering Jesus a little bit here, but he's doing a weird thing. He's going back to the three, but he shifts the middle. Now, part of me, I'm like an analytical grammar nerd. I like to try to analyze linguistically why people do the things that they do. And so I'm wondering, is this guy in his mind, is he taking the Old Testament approach where heart and soul are really one thing? Jesus says mind. And so this guy uses understanding to mean mind. And so he links heart and soul into just the word heart now. And then he says, okay, Jesus said mind. I'm going to go and reiterate that with understanding. Is Is he linking heart and soul into heart? Or is he linking the two concepts of soul and mind into the word understanding? Because Jesus had two words in his middle, and this guy needs only one. So he's like, okay, maybe I can link soul and mind into one thing, understanding. And this is the point. The guy is confused by the fact that Jesus would try to add a new item into this mix. Because the Jewish people, as I've said, they saw heart and soul as the one thing inside you, the intangible thing inside you. But by saying the word mind, Jesus has now just done something weird. Because mind is also inside you. There's one thing outside you, strength. There's one thing about my body that people can see, you know, strength. But Jesus has added another inside you word. And so that makes this guy uncomfortable. And it makes you uncomfortable. And it makes me uncomfortable. Because I understand the word mind. And I can find a way to understand the word heart. But I still, Now I'm forced to reckon with the idea that soul isn't just part of heart and soul isn't just part of mind because Jesus separated it somehow. And so then the question is, what do I do with the soul? What what do I do with that? What do I do with that word and, and what it means to love God from my soul? I don't even understand my soul. And then to make it even more difficult, by the time you get to the New Testament, there's a whole new term that gets thrown in you might remember this term. It's the term spirit. And now all of a sudden in the New Testament, the word spirit pops up a bunch of different places. And that's really interesting because most of the time the word spirit shows up. It's talking about God who is a spirit or it's talking about his Holy Spirit who he sends to us. But every now and then the word spirit applies to you and to me. Let me show you this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like, oh no! No, I've got soul, and I've got spirit, and I've got body, and I've got all three of these things in the same little verse. And listen, put that back up on the screen. I want to show you guys something because I'm a nerd, right? I'm a, grammar, I'm a grammar weird nerd. And if you go back to that verse, there's a big question I want to ask you. And it is the question, where should the comma go? Your whole spirit, comma, soul and body. Does spirit mean the word for both soul and body? or should we add another comma before the word and and it's three things there's spirit and there's soul and there's body and i tell you what depending on the church tradition you were raised in, you probably heard one of these two approaches to this idea. There's this one theory that human beings are made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe someone has just used that before, and you're like, okay, body, soul, and spirit. I understand body. Soul is this ineffable thing that is beyond me that's kind of like it's, it's inside me somehow. Spirit, well, what is that? And then some Maybe someone told you that under their particular view of doctrine, spirit was the portion of your interior world that connects to God. And your spirit is dead if you're not connected to God. But if you're connected to God, so some people walk around and they've got a body and they've got a soul, but they're also dragging around a dead spirit somehow. And so that's, that's this other idea that there are three things, but it all, it all depends on where you put the stupid comma, right? Right? Right, I mean how are we supposed to understand this? Paul, give us some more details. Spell it out for us. Am I one thing or am I just two things? Spirit somehow refers to everything that I am, and body, soul is what I am. What what is it? So that you got the tripartite three things? There's some people who hold the bipartite perspective, which is material and immaterial. There's something about me that's immaterial. And there's one guy, one guy that, you know, I read an article about once who, who believed that you were just one thing. You were a soul stapled to a body and they couldn't co- they couldn't exist apart from each other. That you are either alive as a body with a soul, or you are 100% dead and the soul's dead too. He was like, there's just one thing. You're a monad was his word. And it's like, come on, what is it? I'm supposed to love God with all my soul. Do I also have to love God with some spirit thing too? Where's the line? I'm glad you asked because Hebrews 4.12 shows us the line. And I find this fascinating. It says this, for the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We get the word heart here. We get thoughts here. We get attitudes here. But it's also, it separates between soul and spirit. And so some people are like, ah, see here, there's proof. There's proof. We don't have to worry about the comma problem. There's proof here that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that soul and spirit are two different things. And I take another perspective because I say, hang on a second The sharpest thing in the universe is the thing that's required to separate soul and spirit. The the Word of God is sharper than anything else. That's the thing that can separate soul and spirit. None of the rest of us can. I mean, the point of this text is to say that God's Word is more incisive than anything else. And so if He chooses to tell us the difference between soul and spirit then we would know. Shame he hasn't. What I find the most fascinating about this entire topic is how desperately I and people like me want to know the answer for what the soul is. Want to know the answer for what the difference is between the spirit and the soul. We want these sorts of things because we are uncomfortable with what we don't know. We are uncomfortable with the mystical. We are uncomfortable with the thing that goes beyond us. And so I want to give you just a few more verses to give you a sense, not an answer, but to give you a sense of what the Bible means when it uses the word soul. And it begins in the very earliest chapters. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, says this. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living Hebrew word soul. We translate it being, because a living being is what he became. But the Hebrews, when they wrote it, when Moses wrote this down, He used the word soul, nefesh, for that. God breathed the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Somehow, soul is fundamental to who we are as a a human being. Soul is fundamental to our identity. It's, It's deep there somehow. And then Jesus says this. Fascinating thing, Jesus says... He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Quick comment that helps you understand a doctrinal point. Jesus is the reason we believe in such a thing as a heaven or a hell. If you have an idea of heaven or you have an idea of hell and your idea is not limited to the things Jesus specifically said about heaven and hell, then your ideas have gone too far because we literally don't know very much at all about either heaven or hell, but it is only because of Jesus that we know anything about it at all whatsoever because he's the guy who taught about it, then died, then came back and said, see I told you I knew what was going on. So that's the guy that that's the guy that we trust, okay? And he's the one who says that you have a body and you have a soul. And your body can die while your soul can live. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't touch your soul. Instead, hold holy fear for the God in heaven who has the authority to reunite your body and your soul and then send you into eternal punishment. That's who you should fear. Fear the one with that level of power. But don't fear any of these other people who can only do something with your body. And Jesus will say other things about that, like the person who would gain the whole world and yet lose their soul. Uh, he, He warns against that kind of stuff. It's because of Jesus that we understand body and soul are somehow different and that the soul is the part of a human that is eternal. The part of a human that can be destroyed but can't be killed. Let's move on, because First Peter also gives us something really interesting. Peter writes, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter is giving us a window into a way that our soul can be touched. And the window is that when I engage in things he calls sinful desires, those desires wage a war inside of me, but apart from my knowledge, I'm not waging the war. It's the desires themselves. It's the sin itself that somehow finds a way to wage a war inside me against my own soul. It's as if he's trying to say, God gave you your soul when he breathed the breath of life into you. And when you let a non-God thing come into the depths of who you are, they fight. Go on a little farther, and we see this in Mark chapter 14. Jesus, the night before he's crucified, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Now, it's possible that Jesus simply meant the word soul in that abstract interior life kind of way that we do. Maybe he meant soul in the way that heart and soul are the same thing. And he's just saying, I feel it deeply inside of me. But it's also possible that Jesus, who knew things better than we knew, than we know, It's possible that Jesus knows there's a thing happening in his soul that is even deeper than the thing that's happening in his heart. See, all of this you put together, and I cannot give you a definition of what the soul is. I can't give you a definition of how the soul works. I can't give you a neat, tidy little Bible verse that says this is the spirit, this is the soul, this is the body, this is the mind, these are the different things and this is how you treat them all. I can't. All I can do is I can give you kind of a big picture idea of what scripture tells us the soul kind of is. And then I'm gonna give you some guidance from scripture and from my own personal life with regard to what we need to do for the soul. First, let me show you with my pseudo-definition of what the soul is. I would say that our soul, my soul, is my deep self, my deep identity, the, the fundamental core of who I am as a living being, the breath of God all the way down in me. It is immaterial, and this is the key, it is inaccessible to me, but it's formed by me. I can't reach my soul directly. God breathed it into me. One of these days, my soul will be separated from my body, and that soul is something that I do not now know. I don't know the way that soul thinks. I don't know the way that soul feels. There is a way that these things are kind of touching each other, but the soul inside of me is deeper than me. It is deeper than my mind. It is deeper than my heart. It is deeper than my body. It is something else. It is something that can exist independently of my strength or my mind or my feelings. And it is something unknowable to me now. But it is something that I can form. I like to think of it like a little plant. Imagine a little plant that's growing in the ground. You have no idea what's happening inside that plant. I mean, scientifically, we kind of do because we have cut other plants open. But you can't cut this plant open, the one that you're trying to grow. If you cut this plant open, you've killed it. You have to trust that something is going on inside of this plant that is similar to what has gone on inside other plants. And then you do the work that you do with plants, which is you cultivate it, you feed it, you nurture it, you make sure it gets water, you make sure it gets shade. But you cannot control its growth You cannot control its fruitfulness. All you can do is provide the environment for the nourishment to happen. And you have to trust that it will. Before I get into any sort of like how-to or any kind of instruction, what I want to do is I want to share with you some of my own personal journey. Because I think there are three broad, big ways that God has worked on me that I believe, basically just by faith, that have affected my soul. I can't, I can feel the difference in my heart and I can think the difference in my head and I can see the difference in my behaviors, but I am trusting that these things have soaked down into the depths of my soul. They have been such formative moments in my life that most of them, you who have been around here for a while, have already heard. I'll share just a couple of them and try to pick a couple of them that are a little bit new. But the first thing that I would say is that um, when I was younger, I saw some friends around me. I told you this last week. I had a lot of times in my life when I felt kind of like depressed. Like, um, I I wasn't sure of my relationship with God. And last week, I told you how God kind of opened up my heart to love him. But God did something else during that time, too. God also showed me people around me who had lives that were more joyful than mine was. And I made a conscious decision. And I know this is going to sound silly and kind of lame to a lot of people. It's, It's just not, it's not noble. I saw a couple guys who were older than me and I liked them and I wanted to be their friends. And so I decided I would act like them so that I could become their friends. I could become their friend. And it worked. And so they were like happy-go-lucky, always doing kind of the fun thing. My sister calls them my weird friends. But they were, they were enthusiastic and I chose to make myself their friend. And I chose to shift a little bit of my identity so that I would be more inclined, they would be more inclined to let me be their friends. And it worked. So me and Dave and Jim and Tim and my weird friends, my sister didn't like me when I was with them, but it was fun. We had fun. And that developed in me the ability to, to be kind of a fun-loving, outgoing sort of person. And most of my kind of like extroversion comes from that sort of time in my life. But it was a moment where I said, this is the direction I want to head. And so I'm going to make a choice that takes me in that direction. I'm going to make a choice that moves inside of me to bring me into that circle. And there's been a lot of my life that has been formed because of those relationships. Now, I have other relationships I made different choices for. I made completely different choices for the relationship that I had with Jason or with Eric or Katrina. I had a completely different set of relationship choices that I made for those relationships. And my sister approved of those choices. She thought they were cool people. Now, neither of these groups of people were bad people. It's not like we did any carousing whatsoever. I was a pastor's kid who actually kept the rules. I know, it's weird. But my sister didn't like me when I was with some of my friends. That's as far as that one went. My parents didn't care. But in this particular case, I made choices that moved me in directions that then formed me over time, that shaped who I was. My choices with Jim and David led to me becoming a leader of a Bible study in my church that spread to other churches. And we had six or seven churches that were represented in the Bible study that we led among teenagers on Saturday mornings. But my relationship with Jason and Eric and Katrina and Roxanne, that relationship led to me being emotionally healthy as a human being, somewhat. You know, as far as I am, that, a lot of that came from these relationships over here. But it started with choices that I made. Now, there were some other things that God used in my life. It wasn't just my own choices. It was also experiences, things that have happened to me, I remember, I remember one moment I was a senior in college and the guy that I had roomed with my freshman year came in and sat down with me. He said, hey, can we talk? And it was late at night. I had come home from my job at Baker Square slinging pies in people's tables. And, uh, and he says to me, can we talk? And we sat down and we talked. And at that moment, it's the fall. And he said to me, Jeff, I'm gay. And then he told me the story of how he had spent the summer experimenting with a variety of relationships and had discovered where he believed his joy would be found. And he shared that with me. And it was the first time in my life I had encountered a person whose heart and sense of self were deeply out of line with how I understood God's word. I went to a Christian school. I thought everybody around me was deeply in line with how we understood God's Word, at least on some level. But this was the first time I was talking to a person who I cared about and who I knew cared about me. A person for whom I, I, I felt a deep connection with the perspective that this person had. And yet I couldn't have a connection with an aspect of the perspective this person had. I remember just a number of years ago, I was sitting in a room with a bunch of other pastors and one of the pastors said something to me that blew my mind. When I came to town, I was thinking to myself, you know what I really want? I really want to be part of a diverse community. One of the reasons my wife and I picked Lafayette when we moved to Lafayette was that of middle Indiana, this area is like the most diverse Because when you include Purdue's campus in West Lafayette, there's a a bit of diversity around here. And so we came here because we had come from from the part of Chicago that was like 90% everybody else. You know, and when I say that, I mean there were 80 languages spoken in the school across the street from us. And it was the kind of thing where no one shared the same nationality. Like everyone was different from everyone. And it was just fascinating. But we came here and I remember sitting in this room with a bunch of pastors and everybody around the circle was just white skinned like me. And I was wondering why we were having such a hard time building any kind of bridges with the African American church community. And this guy told me a thing that made it sound like it was the fault of the black churches. It told me a thing where he was like, man, I've been, trying, I've been trying to reach them for years and they just don't want to do anything, they don't want to have anything to do with us. As if it was, As if it was their hard-heartedness, the hard-heartedness of the African-American community, that they weren't willing to be part of this group of pastors that we were beginning to form together. And it was a year or two or three after that that we were having a follow-up conversation. And he said that he had recently had a new conversation with one of the black pastors in town, and that pastor had said, oh, no, we're never going to join that thing. And the guy said, well, why not? And the black pastor said, well, it's because you use the word evangelical in your name. I mean, we're most African-Americans are Democrats. We're not Republicans. And the guy was like, Wait, what do you mean Republican? Evangelical, that's not a political word. And the guy said, oh, yes, it is. And so this African-American pastor wouldn't join this other group because if he were to join this other group, then all of the people in his circle would think that he too was evangelical and that was all of this right-wing fundamentalist Republican stuff that he didn't want to support. And it was the first time in my life that I realized, holy cow, people think of words differently than I do. And I built a relationship with that guy. And we eventually got to the place where our church and their church are sharing a Bible study together on Wednesday nights. And it's the kind of thing where over that journey, I began to realize that maybe my own understanding is wrong. And maybe I need to soften my understanding about some things so that I can understand the other person a little bit better. So that then we can find out maybe where God is leading us in some of that. And my soul changed by being challenged with that little bit of maybe your definitions aren't totally accurate. But it went beyond that. During the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, mid-2020s, I know for a lot of people, they were really given a wake-up call when George Floyd was killed. But long before that, I had been in relationship with some other African-American pastors in town. And so long before the situation with George Floyd, I had already heard name after name after name of other people who had been killed unarmed by encounters with the police or something along those lines. And I had already seen and I had already heard and I had already felt the anguish from my friends over the circumstances that were affecting the lives that they were living and the people that they were trying to love and support and serve in their churches. And so then, when the George Floyd thing happened, I was with them on the side of, this has been going on far too long. For me, it wasn't a, oh my goodness, now I've realized something. For me, it was a once again sort of thing. And then in the aftermath of everything that happened with that, things around our church changed, things around society in general changed, dramatic shifts. And all of those experiences have deeply affected my soul in ways that I don't think I recognize. I don't think I would recognize myself from five years ago, ten years ago. If you took me back to that person and then showed me this person, I'd be like, I don't want to ever be that person. But that's the person I am now. Somehow God has used my choices, but somehow he's also used the experiences that I've been in to just deeply shake and change the person that I am. Like, like, deeply. But it's not just those two things. There's a third way that God has done big work in my heart. And I don't have a neat, tidy, little even word for it. The best word I can come up for is just the word Presence. There have been these moments in my life when when I just feel God is there and like I just want to sit there for a while. Like I was at Point Loma Nazarene University at a youth conference my senior year in high school and everybody went to bed and I grabbed my guitar and I went down to the far end of the dorm room hall that we were on, the floor, the far end, so that no one could hear me. And I went into the bathroom at the end of that hall, and I just tucked myself into this little corner of the bathroom, and I played my guitar, and I sang this one song, just me, myself, singing this song for like 15 minutes. And I was just like in this place where like the, the lyrics didn't matter. A couple years later, After I had come home from um, break at college, I was hanging out with my friends down at Huntington Beach and we were sitting there on the sand and I had had my guitar again and we had been singing some songs and then I stopped playing because I looked and I kid you not, the ocean was glowing. Glowing. Like, maybe you've seen this before on some, like, nature documentaries or something, but I'd never seen it before. I didn't know about the bioluminescent algae that can sometimes swarm the coastal regions of Southern California and, and create a whole amount of havoc for the, for the ecosystem there. I didn't know about the danger and the trauma that was going on underneath the surface of the water at the time. All I knew is the wave came up and was glowing bright green-white, and then it would crash, and all of that glowing bright green-white would dissipate into the foam, and the sea would be pitch black again. And then next thing I knew, another wave would come up, and it would be again. And it was in this moment, I stopped playing the guitar, I stopped talking to my friends, I stared at the ocean, and I was like, holy cow. I remember the time when my professor did the derivation for E raised to the I pi equals negative one on the chalkboard. And I was like, man alive, blown away. I know you don't care about that. I've talked about that one before. I'm a math nerd. I saw that and I almost cried. And then the times that I see the JWST, the, the space telescope images or the Hubble images, sometimes I just have to sit there and do nothing and think nothing and just be there in that moment. And I'll tell you something. I don't know how, and I don't know if, and I can't feel when my soul ever changed in any of those things. But I have this faith that something happened in all of those moments. What I want to share with you today is just a brief kind of sense of how we can cultivate our soul. And as I said, I don't have nice, tidy little Bible verses for it, but just a brief little idea, sense of how we can cultivate our soul like a little plant. And so to start with, I want to challenge us all with something that I find personally incredibly difficult, and I don't even have my own answers to it yet. But I want to share something with you. Christians believe that there is an identity and a self that is different from the body we are in. Christians believe that a person not just can be, but that all persons are a different thing inside than they are their body. Christians believe that there is a disconnect between the depths of a person's soul and what their physical reality says about them. And when we enter into a world today, you will see many people who are trying to convince Christians that who they are on the inside is different from who they are on the outside. There are people today in our world who have adopted this mentality much more effectively, we could say, than Christians have. But the problem is, Christians are so uptight about being against the kinds of behaviors and attitudes and things that are in the world. We are so uptight about that, that we sometimes sound like people who are the modad, monad people. We, we sound like the people who are like, oh no, your soul and your body are intrinsically linked and they cannot be separated. And then someone says, well, what happens when you die? And you're like, oh, my soul goes to heaven, you know? And it's like, well, wait a minute. What is it? You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that my body and my soul are intrinsically linked and you can't, and then also say, but my soul is going to go to heaven. And you can't say to this other person, oh no, you can't possibly be a one thing on the inside and a different thing on the outside. You can't possibly be that because that, that would never happen. Let me tell you the truth. If there is a disconnect between a person's body and their soul, my response to that is, you know mine too. I have a huge disconnect between my body and my soul. My body wants all kinds of things that my soul shouldn't have. My body wants all kinds of things that would be doing, that would be waging war against my soul. Peter told me that. The problem that Christians have in our world today is not that we reject things like transgenderism, The problem that we have is that we are people who don't understand what to do about the disconnect between a body and a soul. We should be people who accept the truth of the disconnect between the body and the soul, and we need to be people who learn what to do about it. Because, see, here's the truth. I can't touch my soul, but I can affect my soul. And I can't change my soul but I can nurture my soul. And my soul is not fixed. It can be formed. And the voice that Christians need to have in this world is a voice that says, whatever is going on in the deepest parts of you is definitely true about you right now. But what is going on in the deepest parts of you right now is not who you always will be. Because there is a creative God in heaven who is for every single one of us, changing us on the deep inside. And the disconnect that I have with my own soul is no different than the disconnect anyone else has with their soul. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can believe that the God who breathed the breath of life into me once is the God who can breathe the breath of life in me again and again and again and continue to make me a living soul and continue to transform me time and time again. And so there are things that I do to cultivate a soul that loves God. And if we get better at this, I think we just might have something to say to the world around us that would bring light and joy and hope and peace into the lives of people who right now are feeling only hatred and hurt and pain and depression. And so I want to encourage you to follow a few simple principles to cultivate your soul. Number one, the big picture idea is to embrace the beyond me moments. Because the soul is something that I can't directly interface with, the moments that touch my soul must be moments that go beyond me. They're moments where my strength isn't strong enough. There are moments when my thoughts aren't good enough. They're moments when my feelings aren't big enough. Those are the moments where my soul can be a- affected. And I need to find ways to embrace those moments. So I'll, I'll give you a few of those moments this morning. First of all, moments of wonder. Moments of wonder, like me sitting on the beach seeing the amazing work of God's creation doing something fascinating that I now know the scientific answer to, but it still doesn't change the fact that it was awesome. Moments of wonder. Let me show you this verse. This is from Psalm 104. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, my soul. I love how he's talking to his soul. You know, he's like, he's like, okay, I'm me, but my soul needs some education. I'm going to give my soul some training here. So soul, do this praise God. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. Have you ever seen God do that? I haven't. And that's the point. The point isn't to describe something you have seen or heard or know. The point is to say, oh yeah, you know the God we talk about? He's bigger than big. He's the guy who wears light as a garment. Sometimes you just gotta let your brain just go bigger. Moments of wonder. I would also invite you to embrace moments of commitment. Moments of commitment, listen, this is the reason we hate commitment is that we all know commitment is bigger than we can do. We all know that our willpower today is different from our commitment statements that we make. The beginning of every single January, you know you don't want to make a New Year's resolution because you already know that you've failed to keep them the previous years. And so someone says, you're going to make a New Year's resolution? You say, no, I never keep them, so I just stop making them. And everybody's like, oh, that's funny. And they pat each other on the back because we all know that commitments require more of us than we're willing to give. And that's the point. A commitment is one of those moments that is a beyond me moment. And I'm not talking about the kind of commitment where you have your fingers crossed in the back. The kind of commitment where you're like, okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna do this, but everybody knows I'm not gonna do it. Or I'm gonna say I'm gonna do this, and then years later when it becomes uncomfortable and inconvenient, I'm not gonna do it anymore. I think there's a kind of commitment that we need to make that says, yes, I know I'll hate this in the future. Yes, I know I'm gonna hate you in the future, but guess what? I'm still gonna commit to you because it's bigger than me. And that's how my soul is going to grow. Take a look. Same psalm, Psalm 104. Later on in the psalm, it says this. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. That's a guy making a commitment. I'm going to make a commitment to just sing to God. Some days I'll feel like it. Some days I won't. But I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing to God. I'm just going to do it. It's just a commitment of mine my whole life long. And may God be pleased with it. But then there's another one. It's not just a a commitment. I also also want you to embrace the moments of, of beyond me, moments of trust. Trust is another one of those moments that are always beyond me. If I could do it, I wouldn't need to trust you. If it was something in my power, I wouldn't trust God. Trust is always a moment that is beyond me. And at the end of Psalm 104, the psalmist writes this. It's fascinating. At the end of it, he says, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. And there was a part of me, I wanted to make this a moment of anger. You know, this is a guy who's like, may those bad people really get it. But no, pay close attention. He leaves it to the end. This is the last verse of the psalm. And in the last verse, he says, and by the way, God, this whole get rid of the enemies thing, I'm going to leave that in your hands. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. He's not even asking God to do this. He just says, I hope it happens. May it happen. Moments of commitment, moments of wonder, moments of trust. And then there's this, this last moment that I want to lead you to with a couple verses. Romans 8:28 through 29 is kind of a bridge, kind of trust kind of something else. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Lots of people memorize that part. God works for the good. Okay. God works for my good. Yay. Almost. Keep reading. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What God's goal for you is, is to shape you and to change you into being like Jesus. And i got to remind you, that guy was crucified. He rose again three days later. But that didn't make Friday any easier. That guy went through a sorrow of his soul that was so deep. So no, Know this. Yes, God is working through all the circumstances to bring something good, but the good He's going to bring about in your life is similar to the good He brings about in His own Son's life, which is a resurrection on the other side of hardship. Because God's goal for you is to shape your soul into being more like the soul of His Son, Jesus. That's a trust thing, but it's also a little bit of another thing. That's a me wanting to be more than me that's a me wanting to be more like Jesus let me show you this psalm that i find fascinating it's psalm 131 it's a beautiful beautiful psalm the psalmist says my heart is not proud lord my eyes are not haughty i do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me i'll let the wonderful things just be wonderful i'm not going to try to figure them out but i have calmed and quieted myself i'm like a weaned child with its mother Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The amazing thing about a weaned child is that before the child is weaned, if it gets close to its mom, it thinks it's food time. It's all grabby and annoying. But after the child has been weaned, that's the moment when the child can be with the mom. Finally without needing the mom to just meet its need at that moment. And this psalmist is saying, my soul has just reached that point where I can be with God. And I'll trust that the food will come sometime, but I can just be with him. The most profound passage about this, and this is the last one we're going to look at, is in Luke chapter 10. But before we get there, I'll give you the blank. We need to look for those moments of presence, those moments where we can just be with God. Let me show you this verse. It's just it's just a beautiful story. You know it. I know you know it, but it's worth looking at. Luke chapter 10, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Of course, she opened up her home to Jesus. This is Jesus. Don't you want to take care of Jesus? Don't you want to meet Jesus's need? Don't you want to do everything that would line up for Jesus to experience the best possible thing he could experience? Isn't this the way you show love to someone? You do everything possibly they could want so that you've covered all the bases and they can't give you that funny look that says, I was really hoping for chocolate and you gave them vanilla. You want to make sure every Everything is taken care of. That's what love really is, right? Keep reading. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You were worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I love what Jesus does there. He says, you're worried about many. And if we reduce it to need, only a few things are needed. No, just one. There's only one thing that is needed. And that is the better thing that Mary has chosen. It is to be with Jesus. You can do all kinds of things for Jesus. But being with Jesus is what's needed. That's why he would say in John chapter 15 and and later verses, he would say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why he says that. But what I want to do is I want to leave you with this one thought today. And then I'm going to ask you to spend just a few moments in kind of quiet, silent prayer breathing. And the thought is simply this. I will open myself to the breath of God in me. I don't know how he's going to breathe into you. For Adam, he had to take his hands and get all over that guy. He had to take the the crumbled up dust and Whatever from around here. And he had, to, he had to push it together and shape it and fashion it like a potter with clay. And he had to mush it all together and squish it into a shape that would be something like what Adam should be. And then, after getting his hands all over him, then he breathed and he became a living soul. And your soul and my soul today need some breath. And yeah, Jesus says, love the Lord with all your soul. But if you, ha- if you don't have much soul to speak of, you can't love him with it because you don't even know it. But I think the most loving thing that we can do with God with regard to our soul is to do what Mary did and to just be there in his presence. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to listen. I'm going to let the breath enter me. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So, if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.